Welcome to Broken Law, the podcast about the law, whose interests it serves, and whose it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. I'm Jeannie Hiroska, Senior Advisor for Communications and Strategy at ACS. As the midterms played out over the past few weeks, another story has been unfolding with pretty seismic consequences for its field. I'm referring to the complete collapse of FTX, a cryptocurrency exchange. Now, maybe you, like one in five Americans, have traded cryptocurrency, or maybe you've heard the term cryptocurrency, but that's about it. Either way, what's happened with FTX is a big deal. This week, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen referred to FTX's downfall as, quote, a Lehman moment for cryptocurrency, referring to the collapse of Lehman Brothers in the 2008 financial crisis. So on today's episode, we're going to discuss this Lehman moment, its consequences for cryptocurrency more broadly, and whether the downfall of FTX could push crypto-specific regulations finally across the finish line. First, I'll speak with Yesha Yadav, Milton R. Underwood Chair and Professor of Law, Associate Dean, and Robert Belton, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Community at Vanderbilt University Law School. Professor Yadav's research focuses on financial and securities regulation, specifically the evolving response of regulatory policy to innovations in financial engineering. Second, I speak with Aaron Klein, Miriam K. Carliner Chair and Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution, where he focuses, amongst other things, on financial technology and regulation. Professor Yadav, welcome to Broken Law. Hi, Jeannie. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure and a privilege to get to have this opportunity. I'm so excited to talk to you. I, I listened to your previous podcast episode on the weeds, and so it's a great privilege to have you on our show and to be able to kind of build off of that conversation. So I'm going to start with just a really basic question, which is, what is cryptocurrency? Well, it's a. you think it's a basic question, but it's actually much harder than it seems. Um, one, because crypto refers to a very broad phenomenon of essentially code, uh, assets which are digital assets that exist only as code. And what they reference is exactly that. It's an ephemeral digital asset that exists on these very global networks that reference essentially um, the networks themselves. In other words, many of these coins that you hear about reflect the power of the underlying networks of which they are a part. So if you look at Bitcoin, for example, this is a, um, a peer-to-peer payment mechanism as originally envisioned. And what's interesting and unique and intriguing about Bitcoin is that it's designed to function without having any intermediaries in the middle. So it's not designed to have a bank or a government that's supposed to backstop what exactly Bitcoin is supposed to do. And so in order for one payment from one person, from me to you, Jeannie, um, for that to go forward, then the network has to do the checking. So the network, the code, the protocol, the AI behind the network has to make sure that Jeannie is Jeannie, that I am me, that you have the coin in your account, that I have the coin in mine. And so in order for that to happen, we need people within the network to protect that network. In the case of Bitcoin, those are these people called the miners. What these miners do is essentially uh, go into all the different transactions that are coming into the network. They pick out the ones that are likely to be correct, that are likely to uh, pass muster on the network. And as a reward for their effort, they get coin. They get these digital representations of value as the network sees it. So that is one type of crypto, essentially a reward for maintaining the network's functioning. And the more that these coins have proliferated, for example, Bitcoin or Ether for the Ethereum network, 
the more they've been able to be traded. And that tradability has given them some value, some importance, some significance economically within the larger crypto economy. So that is one type of uh, crypto, which is a digital asset that references value attaching to a particular crypto network. Can I just ask on that, the, the term is always cryptocurrency. Is currency the right way to think of it? Because if I think of traditional currency, a dollar is very similar to a euro in that they operate the same way. You can exchange one from the other pretty readily. Does cryptocurrency operate in that same way where every type of cryptocurrency is more or less like the other and they're they're exchangeable? I would say that the term currency is a function of where this came from, which is Bitcoin. Um, and Bitcoin essentially was designed to be, in the original white paper for Bitcoin, was designed to be a peer-to-peer payment mechanism. And so it fashioned itself as a replacement eventually for the dollar to uh, provide a substitute down the line for the different national systems that we have from the monetary standpoint. A Venmo of sorts that doesn't go through a bank. Exactly. It's an amazing way to think about it. Yeah. Um, and so that was the original idea for it. But the idea for the currency itself in today's world is very dependent on context. So in certain countries, you do see Bitcoin being used as a currency. So El Salvador, the Central African Republic have called it legal tender, but other countries that have less reliable monetary systems have adopted some form of crypto, Bitcoin as one alternative local currency. So in those contexts, we could see how it's functioning in a monetary capacity. But the notion of it being a currency is still very far away. It doesn't have the institutional backstops of a dollar or a euro. And certainly it's not a convenient payment mechanism. It takes too long for the validation to happen. Sometimes the validation doesn't go ahead because the network is too crowded. So these things have restricted it from becoming a fluid payment network. And from the legal standpoint, governments around the world, the international financial system has not recognized it as a currency. And so, you know, for various reasons that we can discuss, but so the the notion of the currency itself is something we need to be careful about when we use this term in a strict sense. But, you know, beyond that, the question you ask is an interesting one. Is Bitcoin, Ether, substitutable assets? And that's something that is still a work in progress. One, we have tons and tons of crypto in the market, right? So there's something like maybe 2,000 coins and growing. These coins come out of, um, I was going to say the Ether, but that could be quite confusing. Um, <laughs> it feels like they come out of thin air. <laughs> so let's go with thin air. Thin air sounds sounds good. Um, you know, they, 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 are, they proliferate. And so substitutability is... Um, is, is hard to create. But also, these networks are doing different things. So Ethereum, for example, has a lot of functionality with respect to these so- things called smart contracts, which are essentially automated programs that can run on the Ethereum blockchain. So Ethereum itself is doing very different things from Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, the, the network is doing different things, has different functionalities. The other networks like Solana or Avalanche and all these different blockchains that have come into being, they do slightly different things. So substitutability is something that is still still a work in progress. But I will say that folks do try and exchange one coin for the other, trade in different pairs, as they're called. Um, 
But this is a world which is still innovating. It's still trying to find its feet. We're still trying to decide how substitutable these things really are. Um, are they like dollar, euro, et cetera? Uh, that's still very much a work in progress. And this is the challenge, right, with regulation, which is it's you have to know what you're regulating in order to regulate it. And there is a, a robust disagreement about what cryptocurrency is, especially just the question of like which agency should even be regulating it. And so that's the question of, is it a security? Is it a commodity? Can you just explain that debate? We're not going to answer the question, but just so folks understand that additional complexity here. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could just answer the question? Um, (laughs) That would be an ace uh, podcast. You know, we just have the definitive answer here, but uh, there's no way we can get there because the agencies have been trying their hardest to, to arrive at a sense of what exactly it is we're talking about in the traditional legal categories that we have been used to transacting in. So for example, as you mentioned, Jeannie, we're discussing, is it a security? Is it a commodity? These are very complicated, kind of old categories of law. Um, So as you know, Jeannie, like the definition of security comes from SEC versus Howie. And I'm glad that we could do this super legal podcast with the, uh, (laughs) with the ACS. So, um, you know, it comes from SEC versus Howie, an investment of money, in a common enterprise for profit through the efforts of others. Now, that is the definitive statement of the four corners of our capital market. This is what we recognize as the risk that we seek to curtail um, by calling something a security and engaging the regulatory framework through that. So when we have an investment of money for profit, we're dealing with risk, we're dealing with a lack of information, we're dealing with the need for information. We're dealing with greed. We're dealing with people becoming irrationally exuberant because we're talking about money and profit. And so we need the securities framework to get engaged with that. We're talking about common enterprise. That means an approximation of a market. Many people together who are not known to each other, they are also going to not be able to protect each other. They're going to need help in that regard. We're dealing with agency costs, so-called, when it's through the efforts of others. In other words, other people are managing your money. They're going to screw around with it. They're going to steal it. They're going to do crappy things with it. And so we need the SecRec framework to be like, look, we're here to protect the investor. If you're using someone else's money, you have to be careful. So that is a definition of a security. Definition of commodity references hard assets coming from the Commodities and Exchange Act. You know, this is dealing with actual real assets like these dresses in my closet or my crappy jeans, you know, things that are affected by supply and demand. So we're dealing with a slightly different risk profile that comes from that kind of asset quality. Um, And so regulators themselves have been wondering, is Bitcoin, Ether, a security or a commodity? When we look at the definition of security and we look at Bitcoin and Ether, it's hard to see common enterprise. We're not pooling money as such. We're having people explicitly take the risk for themselves because essentially we don't have a government backstop or an intermediary like a bank standing there. So the idea here is that it shouldn't be through the efforts of others. There is so-called decentralization here. And so people are really struggling with this. On the other hand, there are these tokens that can sometimes be issued by 
actual ventures to raise money specifically. And they're giving out tokens in digital form that get also called cryptocurrency. And the SEC is like, look, wait, that looks a lot like a Howie security. And so they've been engaged there. And so, you know, the spectrum of crypto that we're dealing with, exactly as you said, Jeannie, it's a complicated definition. It's one that entails different levels of entitlements attaching to these digital assets that are varying. And therefore, there's no one kind of crypto. And so the SEC and the CFTC have been debating as to who gets to be in charge. Now, we haven't even talked about stablecoins, Jeannie, which is another category of crypto that's very different from Bitcoin and Ether. It doesn't have that volatility, supposedly. Stablecoins are assets that take one token and make sure that it's referencing exactly $1. So that token can never trade above or below a dollar. And so the people who are issuing stablecoins, they have to have enough dollars or really safe assets in their accounts to make sure that they have sufficient money to support those coins in circulation. So that's a very different category of crypto is designed to be ultra stable, to be used almost as an approximation for actual fiat money. And that's how it gets used in the crypto economy. On exchanges that don't always have access to bank accounts, they will use stable coins in order to mimic fiat. So that's a different category of crypto altogether. Um, and, and again, we can see why agencies are coming up against age-old definitional problems because there's no one kind of crypto. This is a great backdrop because all of this uncertainty and confusion over what it is and how to handle it is the backdrop for what happened to FTX, right? All of this confusion and uncertainty is unfolding. And then on top of that, we have the confusion over what the hell happened with this one crypto exchange. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So briefly explain for folks, FTX is a cryptocurrency exchange. What's happened to it in the last few weeks? It's it's an amazing question, Jeannie, you know, because everyone's trying to figure this out and the courts are going to spend years trying to figure out what the frazzle just happened here. But let's just take one step back, which is why are exchanges important to the crypto economy? Exchanges have become pillars of the crypto economy. They have become centerpieces. They have become foundational to the crypto economy. So, Jeannie, we started this conversation talking about Bitcoin and Ether, um, which reference these complicated blockchains, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain, the Ethereum blockchain. Now, I don't know how many of us, I mean, we're lawyers on this podcast, right? So we're not always known for our technical expertise to delve into these blockchains and send payments to each other and so forth. Exchanges take away all of that work, right? Exchanges mean you don't have to jump into the Bitcoin network, download that software to your computer and learn how to use it. You don't do any of those things. You go into an exchange, many of them have cool apps for the smartphone that you just download, takes a minute to join. You know, they're very familiar. They try and make their products super attractive. Um, and you can buy and sell crypto on these exchanges quickly, super reliably in a format using terminologies that you're kind of familiar with. All of us know exchanges. That celebrities promote. And celebrities super are promote. Sexy. Yeah. I mean, it's, they're all over the place. Exactly. Like yeah. you got Tom, you know, we've seen the Super Bowl, Tom Brady, even Larry David, right? So we have all of this 
architecture that is familiar. And so exchanges have exploded in popularity. At their height, you know, the top exchanges were doing well over a trillion dollars in spot trading. It's spot meaning the Bitcoin and, and, and Ethereum, the cryptocurrency, a month. In derivatives volumes, they were doing, you know, 10, 12 trillion dollars worth of derivatives trading. So these are not insignificant institutions financially. And FTX was the top of the top, right? So it was one of the top one or two, three exchanges in the world in terms of volume. FTX International, which is the offshore exchange that got into trouble, was the vanguard of crypto for a number of reasons. One, it was a leading light in terms of just attracting volume, had a ton of products that folks were into, but it was also representative of a new brand of crypto, a brand of crypto that would be compliant, that would be safe, that would be attractive, that would protect the customers, as well as provide regulators with the kind of assurance that they had a counterparty that could help them create a world of crypto. Basically everything it turned out not to be. Correct. Exactly the opposite (laughs) of what it was supposed to be doing. And so what happened here is that it lost its way in a big way. So, you know, the, the tale here is not that difficult for us to understand as lawyers. It's a tale of mismanagement and greed. That's the fundamental cause of it, which is that they were taking client funds and seemingly using these funds for a sister agency, Alameda, to take a series of huge bets in the market. Obviously, the market went south in May. It's been going south for a while. And so these bets went bad. And the client money, it turned out, was being used for this. When it became clear this was happening in a tweet and in a report issued by Coindesk that maybe the balance sheet of the sister agency wasn't all it was cracked up to be, of Alameda Research wasn't all it was cracked up to be, exactly happen what was supposed to happen, which is that people were panicking and rightly so. So they ran a hundred miles an hour fueled by social media and tweets and sent out $5 billion in withdrawal requests. That's a classic run. Again, something we're very familiar with and exactly what we would expect to happen, especially for an entity that cannot guarantee it has the funds. In that sense, it is interesting against like all this confusion and uncertainty. And yet what happened is actually very well known and has been seen a thousand times in that sense. Exactly. So this is not something that's brand new in terms of, oh, this is a a, a novel cause to a crisis. When we boil things down to their brass tacks, in fact, these causes are very familiar to us relating to greed, mismanagement, and the irrationality, but actually the rationality that comes from folks trying to get their money back as quickly as possible when they sense that there's danger to their funds. So we're going to talk about regulation. And that has been a a big piece of of this conversation is could this have been prevented had if if cryptocurrency was better regulated? Does this make an argument for regulation? But before we get to that, there seems to be a basic argument, which is, you know, mismanagement cannot be prevented with regulation, right? That's just human flaws, human fraud, human incompetence. So are there existing laws that can actually handle this, like bankruptcy, like white collar criminal prosecution? You know, it's 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 a existentially fundamental question that you just asked, Jeannie, which is what could regulation have done here? And I think there are a couple of things that 
could have been achieved, right? Like you're 100% right that we can't price out human greed, mismanagement. There have been a ton of institutions that have been regulated. See, for example, Lehman was regulated, uh, but obviously we ended up in the financial crisis alongside some of the most regulated institutions in the financial market. We had Enron, which was regulated, again, subject to all sorts of financial mismanagement and greed. So, you know, these things do repeat themselves. But in the case of cryptocurrency, we really haven't had any kind of comprehensive oversight at all. And a couple of places where that oversight could have been super helpful was in relation to client funds. How do we keep these funds safe? That's a very basic thing that could have prevented the run on the institution here. Uh, In other words, that if clients, if customers knew that their money was safe, perhaps they wouldn't have made the kind of withdrawal request that they did that day. The custody function would have been extremely important for a number of reasons. One, that customers would be less likely to have panicked. So if they knew that their money was safe, they would likely not have rushed for the exits as fast and as furiously as they did. But also their money would hopefully have been protected from bankruptcy. In other words, if you know that this money is kept in a segregated account that has the customer's entitlement clearly attached to it, then it's very easy for the bankruptcy system to take that money and just hand it over to the clients, right? Or if there's a trust structure around it, then it doesn't form part of the bankrupt estate um, necessarily. So these are things that could have prevented the client assets from being mingled with the debtor's assets. And that will now lead to these years long worth of processes to get this money back for the clients. So something as simple as just that having custody for the client assets, making sure that these assets are separate from anything that FTX or another exchange has held, for having a clear legal line that says that these assets belong to the customer, it would have prevented the kind of catastrophe that happened so fast in the case of FTX. I think that's something that most of us can agree would have mitigated the harm, though obviously FTX getting into the trouble in the first place could still have happened, but at least it would have prevented that dynamite run that took place um, in November that we are still experiencing the after effects of. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the questions, right, is like, what is the goal of regulation? And and what you're really uh, focusing on is like containing the damage, right? You You can't prevent mismanagement, but can you at least contain the consequences of it? Exactly. That, okay, we never came up with a full-scale framework. We, we should have a framework for exchanges that provides a clear system of how they should govern themselves. In other words, avoiding their conflicts of interest. In the case of FTX, we see that there's a huge amount of conflict between the exchange itself, as well as the hedge funds and the venture arm of FTX that seems to be mingling money uh, between these different organizations. And so, you know, having a clear system for conflicts and separating those functions out, having minimum requirements for how much capital these exchanges should keep in case they do suffer a run, they have resources to pay their customers out quickly and um, calmly to make sure that regulators know what kind of assets these institutions are keeping. So, you know, these are some basic ingredients of regulation, but beyond the systemic aspect of it, keeping this system safe, uh, we also have the the protection, the user protection that needs to be engaged here. And that user protection is very basic to everything we know about the securities framework, which is 
keep client money safe, right? Keep the money of the everyday person that is entrusting you with that money. Keep that money safe. Find a way to keep that money safe. And so we have tons of rules in the normal securities world to make sure that the assets of everyday investors are kept in very secure custody accounts that are well-documented and separate from any issuer. So, you know, there are some clear precedents and systems in place that we're very used to dealing with having expert custodians that take care of this value. But obviously, we didn't apply them here. In fact, we've had rules that have prevented um, financial institutions from holding crypto that could have provided custody. Um, So we have rules that have prevented that from happening in order to firewall traditional financial institutions from crypto's damage and crypto's riskiness. But the unintended consequence has been that those institutions like banks and formal financial custodians have not played a part in holding customer assets. And so obviously, customers will now be stuck in years worth of processes to figure out what they're going to get back. In fact, if they're going to get anything back. Yeah. And all of the what seem like really common sense regulations that you just discussed do apply to the traditional financial sector, right? As you know, banks are, are some of the most regulated entities in the market. And yet they are firewalled from crypto. Even though we call it cryptocurrency, there is a very intentional effort to say, no, these two things are separate and they shall not meet. And yet it does seem like it just it should be so easy to say, yes, but some of the rules of the world that apply to the traditional banking sector, we're just going to copy and paste them and apply them to crypto. Is it that simple? Is it just, you know, adding a couple lines of legislation that say these things that apply to the banking sector over here, we're not going to apply them to the current to the crypto space over over here? I think there's always an effort to see what we can learn from traditional regulation. We've done this for, you know, so many years that we don't need to reinvent the wheel here for crypto. But that depends on a very important assumption, which is who's going to do the regulating, right? Is it going to be the SEC? Is it going to be the CFTC? And that's the starting point here. Once we can establish, is this a commodities exchange um, that the CFTC will regulate, it will engage the CFTC's processes for overseeing exchanges. If it's potentially uh, securities that the, that, you know, we should regard as being Uh, salient here. This will engage the SEC's processes. And the approach of the different agencies tends to be slightly different depending on, you know, which one we're talking about. So the CFTC, for example, has historically been a more principles-based agency, right? That's applying a more principles-based approach. There could be different risks that are attached to the notion of a commodity uh, and potentially trying to differentiate between whether or not you're transacting in Bitcoin, either high volatility assets versus maybe stable coins, which are lower volatility. What kind of uh, capital should you keep in that context, depending on the different assets that are being traded? Is the customer base going to be mostly institutional? Um, Is it going to be retail? If it's retail, um, are the clients going to be in the US? Are they going to be offshore? These are all different considerations that the exchange and the regulators will have to think about. But again, these are not novel things. But we have missed the starting point, which is having definitional clarity on what these assets are sufficient to engage the regulatory systems that we have been long used 
to transacting in. So that's really where the starting point is. And we have not reached that starting point sufficient to bring in the learning that we've already acquired by overseeing the traditional financial marketplace. So if, I, if I'm hearing you right, there's actually, there are great regulatory frameworks that exist and that could readily be applied to crypto if we could just decide under whose jurisdiction crypto falls. We need to get to the starting point. Yeah, right? The SEC could say, we got this covered, like hand it over to us, we will regulate it starting tomorrow. Or you give it to another agency and they say, yeah, we got this, no problem. You know, we're going to start regulating it tomorrow. It's just a you know, seemingly simple question of deciding whose umbrella it falls under. It, it, it's, it's, I mean, that's, that's the starting point, which is let's get some definitional clarity so we can start thinking about what kind of common yeah. sense measures. Who makes that decision? I, I think it's going to have to be Congress at this point, right? Like, yeah. it feels like. And there are efforts underway. For example, prior to the FTX collapse, we've had a number of different legislative initiatives in the works. Uh, The Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act, DCCPA, is one that was quite far along um, and that put the CFTC, for example, in a very important role in overseeing the crypto marketplace. But the DCCPA was being, you know, championed by FTX and others centralized exchanges. And that was seen as not sufficiently representative of the entire crypto industry as a whole. Furthermore, now that FTX has collapsed in this ignominious fashion, what's the what's the consequence for the DCCPA, right? And furthermore, we what kind of learning do we apply from the FTX debacle itself to legislative initiatives that we will take forward? So it feels like Congress is probably going to have to get involved because right now the SECs, the SEC and the CFTC are essentially very um, uh, at loggerheads, essentially, in, in terms of debating who gets to have the authority. There's just no clarity here. Do they want it? Does does each agency want crypto under their umbrella? And, you know, it's like it's the hot commodity in town. They want to possess it. Or is this more like a hot potato where it's like, no, you take it. No, you take well, it. Well, no, I mean, it. based on the evidence that we've seen over the last um, sort of four or five years and enforcement actions being taken by various different SEC, CFTC, as well as statements that are being made, it certainly feels like the agencies do want it, right? Like it's it's part of their remit extension of their authority, right? So if it comes under the securities banner, it obviously expands the SEC's footprint within the marketplace, its authority, its mandate. Um, Same with the CFTC. And so, you know, the extensions of law that would be implied by creating a definitional clarity here for security or commodity would obviously expand the agency's power, its remit, its footprint. And that's certainly something that has been, at least from a political economy standpoint, quite desired by the different agencies themselves. I mean, I haven't seen anyone say, we don't want it. It's certainly been something they have been fighting over to try and get rather than shun, at least over these last few years. Have you been looking at, there've been a bunch of legislative proposals for for all of this. Do you have a sense of which make either the most sense or which seem the closest to to potentially crossing the finish line? Well, there are a number of different proposals underway. Um, so the the one I mentioned earlier, the DCCPA, 
Um, that's been one that at least seemed to be getting a great deal of traction. But again, there was nothing definitive here. The White House issued an executive order in March that encouraged um, all the agencies to come together, that encouraged Congress and others to try and work to create a crypto uh, regulatory system for the entire crypto economy. And that would include not just the standard cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ether, but also stable coins. Also think about potentially a central bank digital currency. So there are these different initiatives underway here. Stablecoin legislation is also being brought forward. Again, there's um, there's a couple of measures that are underway in Congress that Congress is looking at, as well as what agencies are looking at. But there's nothing definitive here at present. So the DCCPA felt like it could be the one that would get some push and maybe could take this forward, but that's now quite tainted as well, given everything that's happened. So I think we're unfortunately on the back foot here. What I will say is that there is urgency to try and get regulators on board. So there is that momentum that FTX has created. That means they can't afford to fight much longer. And I think something has to be done either by Congress or the agencies to, to push this on. Is part of the urgency, the, the concern that FTX is going to have a domino effect And so we're trying to contain the damage of like, yes, FTX has failed. That is for for sure. It's going into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And now it's just preventing other exchanges from following the same path. You know, I think some of this urgency is coming from the industry itself, ironically. So there have been many within the crypto industry that have sought to underplay the role of regulation as a as a significant factor within their industry. So some have been openly skeptical. As a benefit to crypto, right? Like the decentralization kind of Wild West component of it has been part of the attraction. Exactly. It's been part of the appeal, has been part of the philosophy of the industry itself. And now I think many, even skeptics of regulation, have recognized that it's important now, right? You need some clarity, some rules, some, some straightforward standardization to give customers the confidence they need to trust the industry again. Because at this point, you know, there's a lot of broken trust. There's a lot of sense of despair and people's enthusiasm has been burnt because now their money is not their money anymore. It's in the bankruptcy court and it may never come back to them. So at this point, I think the industry itself too is pushing for some kind of clarity and guidance. And I think that will add to the overall urgency of trying to look like we are dealing with a clear and present risk to the market uh, and to customers, average people who have trusted the crypto industry with their money to come up with some basic rules of the road for them to operate. I almost want to take us back to the first question then and say, is, is one of the problems the very term cryptocurrency, because it assumes that all of these things are alike, And actually, we should scrap that term and really break these into separate categories and regulate them separately. You know, I think that would be an awesome thing to start with, Jeannie, which is let's let's try and be careful and thoughtful and sophisticated about how we think about these assets. Now, one thing that has happened over the last three or four years is that 
this this ecosystem, the crypto ecosystem, has moved well beyond Bitcoin and 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 Ether. Has moved into different kinds of coins, different kind of blockchains, different kind of financial um, applications that have been built on these blockchains. We have moved to all sorts of interesting use cases. For example, in the case of stable coins as payment devices, or for non fungible tokens to represent entitlements in the creative industries and so forth if you think about some of the artists that are using nfts to capture entitlements to to what they're doing so these are all these are all part of this digital asset ecosystem but they are playing different roles and have different entitlements so exactly as you said Jeannie, i think we need to be more thoughtful we need to be more educated and we need to be less afraid of the technical detail and complexity that is entailed in capturing the risks and opportunities of these new digital assets, exactly as you said. With that very much in mind, uh, we obviously can't cover all of this in one episode, but I know that I'm always looking to to better understand this space, and I'm sure we're going to have listeners who are interested in, in more detail. Are there resources that you would point them to for folks who want to dive even further into the weeds on, on this topic? You know, one thing that will happen over the next couple of months is that the bankruptcy court is going to be making law here. Um, and I think that's something that all of us as folks that are engaged in the regulation of this industry will be very intrigued by is being able to see what the bankruptcy court is doing. Now, the bankruptcy process is very public. It's also a process in which many, many stakeholders can have their voices heard. Um, And so one of the things that I think will happen is that the bankruptcy court is going to produce some very novel rulemaking as well as some novel detail and descriptions of what exactly happens at these exchanges, how they work, some of the processes engaged in maintaining client assets, some of the legal categories of how these assets should be defined. For example, if one puts money with the exchange, is it the exchange's money or the client's money? How should we define it? Is it an unsecured claim or is there a way to making it some kind of claim that is separate from the estate of the actual bankrupt itself? So the bankruptcy court will be very engaged here. And I think for all of us who are thoughtful and, and thinking about this, we should pay attention to what the bankruptcy court is going to do here. In addition, because what it's going to do is going to be important, I think there'll be a lot of commentary and writing coming from law firms, as well as commentators on what exactly the bankruptcy court is doing. So I would say that's going to be the next space in which some real nitty gritty detail will be emerging. And I think that's where we need to put our eyeballs to see uh, what exactly the bankruptcy court is producing here. I think that'd be super interesting going forward. This does feel very much like a, a still evolving story. And so I, I ha- I'm already predicting that we'll have you and Aaron back in the new year in a few months when there's a little more of this story that's unfolded and we can dive further into what's transpired by then. And, and maybe some of these questions maybe will have been answered. Um, I'm glad you're that optimistic, Jeannie. <laughs> I'm glad that makes one of us that has all this hope. Um, and uh, But, you know, it would be wonderful to come back and, and take a look at some of the big thorny questions that are emerging. I mean, one thing that is becoming more clear is the 
ripple effects of the FTX bankruptcy. So for example, we've seen BlockFi uh, declare bankruptcy as mm-hmm. well, owing to exposures. Um, there's another big uh, company called Genesis that's connected to the Gemini exchange that is teetering on the edge. And so there are all these different institutions that are suffering on account of what's been happening in the crypto market generally, as well as with respect to FTX specifically. Um, So I think that's another aspect to what we could talk about, which are the different kinds of crypto institutions that are populating this economy and the different risks and uh, legal questions that their internal structures are raising. So that's another potential thing that will become clearer and that will be super interesting to talk about with Aaron. You've really hit on something because Secretary Yellen referred to FTX's downfall as as a Lehman moment. And so it does feel like we're actually at the start of cryptocurrencies financial crisis. Yeah. And I would say it's worse. I would say it's way worse than a, yeah. a Lehman moment for crypto, because at least with Lehman, I'm saying at least, but with Lehman, we had a whole bunch of regulators that were ready to step into the fray and to come in there with a bunch of support. And understood all the questions were answered, right? We knew exactly what we were dealing with. And we had, you know, we had the, the, the institute, the, the regulators just very decisively know what to do in that context to save the economy. In the case of crypto, in the case of the crypto economy, there is no backstop here. Furthermore, crypto is a new institution. It doesn't have all that years worth of, you know, centuries worth of traditional financings aura of its mainstreaming. This was a, this was a category of industry that was just trying to come into its own to gain credibility and legitimacy. And it was on that precipice where it was close to doing that. But the fact is that this has set it, set it back hugely. And so in terms of just being able to capture legitimacy and credibility, it's really pushed it back. And so I would say it's way worse than a Lehman moment for crypto. It's an existential moment for crypto as an industry itself. And I think that's something that, again, it will be good to to think about when we have some time to to take a step back and, and, and reflect on what it what these disasters are meaning for the industry as a whole. I think that's a great segment to end it on. And for us as a hook for listeners to come back and listen to the episode. Please come back. I think we, After you we had are predicting all of your holiday food and yeah. <laughs> drinks and your partied out in your food coma, please come back and put the podcast on so we can catch up and, and listen again. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Jeannie, it was such a pleasure. It's such an awesome way to uh, think about this and uh, wonderful questions that uh, you provided. So thank you so much for having me on. It's such a pleasure. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. ACS is a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization committed to protecting our democratic legitimacy and supporting laws and legal systems that improve the lives of all people. If you're enjoying Broken Law, consider becoming a member of ACS today. You do not need to be a lawyer to be a member. Our laws and legal systems impact all of us. By joining ACS, you support Broken Law, our work to diversify the federal bench, our advocacy in support of Supreme Court reform, and truth, racial healing, and transparency information, and so much more. You also become a member of our nationwide network, which includes over 250 student and lawyer chapters. Join ACS and the progressive legal movement today by visiting our website at acslaw.org backslash membership. And now back to the conversation. Aaron, welcome to Broken Law. It's great to be on. It is so great to have you. There's a big conversation right now about whether this is the case for regulation, right? FTX's downfall proves that we must regulate 
crypto. And you make a separate point, which is actually there are existing laws that FTX broke. You don't need new regulations for a company to violate. They can all they can violate existing law. And so you make the case that we need to see prosecutions in the FTX situation. Two questions on that. Who are you envisioning being prosecuted? Are you Sam Bankman-Fried, we've referenced, right? The head of FTX, the 30-year-old billionaire uh, who claimed to be pro-regulation and suddenly maybe not so much. Um, but are you envisioning the likes of him? And if so, do you have an opinion as to what the grounds for prosecution would be? So the entire financial system depends on trust. That's the core of every single system in finance. When you put your money in the bank, you trust it's there. When you buy stock, you trust it's in your account, right? If you think the bank is putting your money in a little box with your name on it and the serial numbers of your dollar bills, you don't understand how the system works. That's the same thing on your stock. If you think there's a little certificate with your name on the stock that you own, that's in a little box with your name, that's not how it works, right? Right. Crypto, to some degree, actually was supposed to work more like that, particularly if you held things, quote unquote, off chain. Try to hold your stock certificate when you buy it in your hand, right? These, the world has become digital. There's nothing new about this with crypto, but we have trust. We have trust in these institutions. And that trust has to be predicated that if you break that trust, you've broken the law. If you break it, you buy it kind of thing. Yeah. Regulation does not stop people from breaking the law, right? Right. It just creates more laws to break. Correct. And But then the question is, when you've broken the law, what happens to you? If the answer is nothing happens to you, but your company gets fined, that's what we saw a lot in the great financial crisis. Maybe you lose your job, maybe you don't, but your company gets fined. Well, who's your company, right? Stockholders, future stockholders when the fine happens, not even the people that own the stock and profited when the fraud was going on and you were reporting fake earnings. That's not sufficient to build, to maintain trust in the system. I think you have to have people who violated the law go to jail. It's too early to tell who in the litany list of FTX violated which laws, where they were based, Alameda holding companies. There's a giant list of, of shell companies that were being moved around. Just yesterday, Bankman Fried was being interviewed and he said, well, this transaction I didn't have anything to do with was a third party Gemini. And the interviewer, uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin, turns to him and goes, you were on the board of Gemini. Right? Yeah. So you've got to be careful about this shell game prosecutors are going to have a lot of time to dig. And one thing we saw in the great financial crisis was prosecutors got scared about bringing cases they may not win against bankers because it was difficult. So rather than try and lose, they didn't try at all. And that's a much bigger mistake. If you try and lose, you still show the system the person is being prosecuted and you show, hey, look, we need stronger laws so that when people conduct malfeasance, they can be convicted. So when people break the law and they convict malfeasance, they can be convicted. If the laws have a problem, let's change the law. This idea that we're going to solve the problem by regulating it, to me, misses the point, right? Bernie Madoff was regulated. In fact, he was well known in the industry and often feted as an industry leader while he was running a giant fraud. Regulation alone doesn't stop fraud. But Bernie Madoff went to jail. I, I I appreciate the deterrence effect to this, right? Is that there's got to be a consequence. You you talked about trust. And one of the issues now is consumer confidence. 
is there's one of the big questions and one of the reasons I'm interested in this is what the consequence for the broader crypto market is going to be is whether people are going to lose confidence in cryptocurrency and whether we're going to whether FTX is just going to be the first of many downfalls as people go, you know what, I'm not I'm not playing this game. I'm not make gambling my money. Do you think of prosecutions as part of maintaining consumer confidence, assuring consumers that no, if somebody loses your money, if somebody commits fraud with your money, there will be consequences for it? Absolutely. I think part of the reason that there was so much anger about the great financial crisis was the feeling that bankers weren't held accountable. Yeah, they got away with it. Right. And so I think, you know, whereas in Enron, I don't think people feel that way. I don't think people feel that Enron executives, quote unquote, got away with it. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's a huge, important part. In terms of crypto, the response has been really interesting. In the crypto community, there's a group of people that think that FTX actually shows that the problem was not uh, uh, the nature of the crypto market, the problem was having a centralized exchange. So, so let me just get a little yeah. nerdy for a second. Yeah, on, on by crypto. all means. Right. When we trade stocks, or, or uh, we tend to go to centralized exchange, the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, right? Crypto, one of the spirits behind it is being decentralized. It's called DeFi, decentralized finance. The idea that you don't need exchanges, you can interact in a decentralized fashion through this new blockchain uh, accounting technology system. And you don't need to have these central counterparties, these clearing houses, the rest. So one group of crypto folks have taken the position that FTX shows that crypto actually makes more sense than it did before. And the problem was when they were trying to mirror more traditional exchanges like FTX, which was the second largest exchange in the world. A different group of folks have said, no, 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 the pro- exchanges are, are still ultimately necessary. We need to have our exchanges be more regulated. And if we had stronger regulation, so they're pushing for new legislation to allow crypto exchanges to be more regulated and to keep them in the U.S. Remember, FTX, again, was headquartered in the Bahamas. And so in this situation, in terms of trust of crypto, I think you're seeing a split within the quote unquote crypto community uh, in in terms of how to handle it and how that plays out. It's still too early to tell. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating split because the allure of crypto has been that it's decentralized, that it is so different from the traditional banking sector. And now the question is, well, is that a problem or is it when crypto tries to mirror the traditional banking sector, then lo and behold, it runs into trouble. So I'll be interested in the ultimate answer of that, of whether maybe the answer is that those two diverge and we end up with more of a niche crypto market. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see. You mentioned earlier Sam Bankman-Fried's interview with the New York Times yesterday, and I, I just want to touch upon that because... I always get a laugh when people who are under investigation choose to speak out. Usually illegal advice is shut up, don't say anything, no comment. Um, SBF is taking the opposite approach and is doing interviews and speaking out and playing this interesting combination of accepting blame and also trying to deflect it. What did you make of the interview 
with him yesterday. Well, look, first off, there's a big question of whether or not there should have been an interview. Right. And, you know, I get the economics of it. I get the eyeballs. I watched. It's clickbait. Yeah, absolutely. It generates a lot of news. But it's also an interesting question whether you're going to put a guy who is very young, at one point was a multi-billionaire, now seems like he was just running a giant scam that seemed to have everybody there. And at certain points, you kind of have to, you know, are we at some degree glorifying or tolerating or accepting it? Right. I think there are also a lot of questions about, you know, privilege, right? Here's a guy who's a son of professors, whose partner at Alameda, the daughter of professors, this kind of academic intellectual elite that says, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, I'm trying to do the right thing. Kind of I'm taking responsibility. It's a little bit when you catch your kid in a lie, right? There's a tension between how much do you punish them for having lied to you and how much do you reward them for finally being honest, And it's one thing when you're kind of parenting uh, or when you're interacting with other people, but it's a very different thing when you've taken people's life savings. And I I give Sorkin credit. The first question he posed him was from somebody who said that their life savings had been stolen in this type of scheme, you know, because people lost, real people lost a lot of money. And, you know, that ultimately is a crime. And that needs to be prosecuted. So, you know, whether or not he's creating evidence to be used against him in a court of law, part of my concern is he's doing this because he doesn't think he's ever going to be in that court of law. He'll be able to hide out in the Bahamas or hide out somewhere else or pay off the, the you know, folks. And that's, we'll have to see. There is an interesting kind of PR move where if you, you become likable, you become sympathetic, you apologize. It's like, no, 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 I understand I did wrong and I promise never to do it again. So you don't need to come after me. I'm not Bernie Madoff sort of approach. And I I think you're right. I really get upset when people point to youth because he's 30. He's an adult. He was gambling with people's money. I do not think youth is any means of an excuse in a situation like this. But we are in a world of, of idols. And I think for a lot of people, you know, kind of like Elon Musk, he was an idol. He was a billionaire at age 30. This is so exciting. And so you're seeing that put on, on trial as much as the underlying events. Yeah. I mean, look, we're going to have to see how the whole situation is, is in trial. It's very interesting because financial crimes are often used to convict people whose ultimate crime is not financial. Right. Right. Al Capone went to jail for tax fraud. Right, exactly. Denny Hastert is in jail for anti-money laundering, right? That was the conviction that he had. It was, you know, constantly withdrawing $9,999 to avoid the threshold to pay off the person he allegedly molested. Now, you know, it would be very difficult to prove a molestation from a gym teacher 30 years after the fact, but here we have bank records of why are you withdrawing $9,900 every month? for umpteen years. So the crime he was convicted of was money laundering, right? When in point of fact, we we realize the actual crime involved is a very different nature. It's interesting to me that when people are killing people or molesting people and they go to jail for financial crimes, we take opinion, well, you know, that's throw the book at them because even though, you know, is money laundering worth this, their real crime was worse. Flip it around. When you're stealing people's money... <laughs> Should you get a lighter sentence under the money laundering rules? Because, oh, it was just money that I took from you. Wait a second. 
You know, when you're taking people's life savings, when you're lying to people, when you're breaking that sacred trust, that's a really serious crime and it ought to be treated as such. And just because a bunch of venture capitalists thought you were a darling and showered money on you, doesn't give you the right to steal someone's life savings and then say, oh, I'm sorry, but look at me. I'm very cute. So let me off. That I think that is his defense right now is I'm young and naive and I should get off. A question on regulation. I think you make a really good point that this is not an argument for more regulation. It's an argument for accountability. That said, there is a very robust discussion going on right now about what crypto regulation would look like. Um, And I expect we will see some type of crypto specific regulation in the future. Where do you see the most need for regulation? Recognizing prosecution is necessary. Yeah. But if we are going to regulate this space. Well, so I think it's going to be very interesting to see if Congress can come to agreement on this because there's a set of existing regulations, right? There's one group of folks that say, look, we have the regulatory structure we need. Crypto is a little strange because it doesn't fit into all of these buckets. Is it a security? Is it a commodity? Is it this? Is it that? Right. And we just need to answer these questions about what crypto is and treat it under our existing regulatory authority, where the Securities and Exchange Commission or the Commodities Future Trading Commission or the Federal Reserve, et cetera, use their existing authorities in crypto? Or do we need a new specific regime designed for crypto? And I I guess I'll I'll posit that I think they're kind of, uh, uh, this debate is breaking out into three different factions. Mm -hmm. You kind of have the quote unquote center who says, oh, you know, big scandal, lots of money lost, you know, uh, a asset that doesn't really, you know, new innovation that doesn't fit boxes. Let's create a new crypto specific regulatory regime. And they're plowing ahead, starting to draft bills and introduce bills, right? That's kind of the center on both parties. You see lots of bipartisan draft legislation. Then you have folks over in the far right, the libertarian element of crypto, which is the beauty of crypto is no regulation outside of government, global asset, not denominated in any national currency. And as we discussed earlier, FTX shows the problem is centralization and we need to run further away from this. Then you have the far left who says, you know, one thing to take away from crypto is there's not been contagion. When banks started to have runs, there was giant contagion, a giant recession. When Enron and MCI WorldCom showed that they were cooking their books, the market got scared that everybody was cooking their books. People forget the stock market fell almost as much in 2002 due to the accounting scandals as they did in 2008 due to the financial crisis. Debt markets behave very differently in 2008. That's why we had a recession and not in 2002. But, but equity and stock markets and investors got almost equal amounts of fear and panic because accounting is something every company uses. And we developed a new regulatory system under Sarbanes-Oxley. We created the Public Accountability, uh, Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, PCAOB, that regulates the accountants now and, and restored confidence. But the left is saying, look at what happened at FTX and crypto. The general economy has been fine. The banks are fine. The corporate America is fine. This isn't, if we're going to end up in a recession, it's not because of FTX, it's because of the Federal Reserve and interest rate hikes, right? It's not, and We need to keep crypto out of the financial system. And when you regulate something, you bring it in. And I've written and and been concerned about the inability of regulators to accept failure of their regulated entities 
as a reasonable and in fact desirable outcome. Do you, do you know how many banks we have in America? I don't. So we have about f- between five to 6,000. And yet I could probably only name like five off the top of my head. So so the 10 largest banks are, you know, have more than about half the assets, but, but we have a very big banking system in the country. We have over 5,000 banks. We used to have over 15 or 16,000. Why? Because we had a really, in my opinion, poor regulatory system that didn't allow banks to exist in multiple states. And we didn't get rid of that till the 90s. Can you believe that? It wasn't until the 90s that you could bank across state lines. So we've had a lot of consolidation. But I'll tell you an interesting stat. Do you know the first year in American history where we didn't have a single bank failure? Was it recently? 2005. Wow. It was the first year ever in American history. Banks have been regulated, yeah. first by the state, then by the federal government. It wasn't until 2005 where we had a full calendar year without a single bank failing. 2006 was the second year without a bank failure. And I was working in the Senate and the bank regulators come up before Congress every year and they talk about the health of the industry. And they were patting themselves on the back about what a great job they'd done because no banks were failing. Right before the financial crisis. It was proof. (laughs) Regulation. We were such good regulators. No banks were failing. And then, as you point out, right, the point of fact was all the banks were totally messed up and no failures. And I started thinking about this. You know, if you went to a city and every year all the restaurants were the same. Yeah. No restaurant went out of business. Is that the mark of a healthy economy? No. If we have 5,000 banks, some of them should try some things that don't work. That's okay. The optimal number of bank failures is not zero. Zero ought to be a huge flashing red flag. Either regulation is too tight or you're all missing something that everybody thinks is okay. Subprime mortgages, right? And regulators don't seem to get this. And we've seen this again and again. Money market mutual funds, one of them breaks the buck and the entire asset class is bailed out. And so, you know, there's a growing theme that says, look, you know, crypto people lose money. That's a problem. Fraud, major problem. Prosecution. But people know when they, they, they ought to know when they're investing in something, how risky it is. And if the government starts regulating things, is the government going to socialize the lawsuit when things happen? And maybe we ought to keep crypto out of the regulatory system. So all this to say, I think that it's going to be interesting to watch Congress where you have the left more skeptical of regulating a system, the right more skeptical of regulating the system, and a center moving forward. Layered on top of that is one more nuanced element about Congress, which is jurisdiction. So this is a little wonky, but I think it's important. It's political, which means it's relevant when you're talking legislation. So in America, we're the only major country on earth that has two different regulators of capital markets. We have the Securities and Exchange Commission that regulates stocks and bonds. And we have the Commodities Future Trading Commission, or CFTC, that regulates derivatives and commodities. This is because agriculture... For most of the 19th century in in America and early 20th century, there were huge political fights between agriculture and bankers. And that dominates our country, Williams, Jennings, Bryant, Cross of Gold in the 19th century, right? This huge fight between the money lenders and the farmers. The farmers need the money lending because of the seasonality of their business, right? And, And you get this whole back and forth. And ultimately, 
the banks and stocks and brokers are all end up under the banking committee or in the House, the Financial Services Committee. But agriculture, who are doing commodities, soy, yeah. wheat, corn, cotton, gold and silver, right? Precious metals get lumped in with agriculture, get regulated separately under the Department of Agriculture and then eventually spun off into the Commodities Future Trading Commission. There's some Supreme Court cases along the way, blah, blah, blah. But the key point is this CFTC, the Commodities regulator who now regulates derivatives and futures, who's where FTX was actually licensed as an exchange, is under still under the Agriculture Committee's jurisdiction. And the rest, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Reserve, et cetera, are all under the Banking and House Financial Services Committees. So this question about whether crypto is a security or a commodity has a political element as to by whom is it regulated. And that you know, you're a, a, a veteran and understand how Congress works too. That is a huge ramification in the U.S. Congress's ability to to make legislation or to reach consensus. Definitely, it it yeah, it makes it an even more controversial subject for sure. I want to just go back to two things. One is. I like the analogy about allowing banks to fail, which is an interesting thing in talking about crypto because there have been so many cryptocurrencies that have come and gone, right? It, it is an example where like cryptocurrencies have definitely been allowed to fail. It happens not uncommonly. No, it's been frequent recently, in part because there are too many of these things, Right. Uh, I had a former SEC commissioner speak at, at Brookings at an event I did, a Republican SEC commissioner, who said that you know over 90% of the crypto coins he saw being put out were, were Ponzi schemes, including one called Ponzi coin. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was making no yeah, bones yeah, yeah. about it. This coin is a Ponzi scheme. Get in early, yeah. right? And so investors ought to know in this, and to some degree, yeah. there ought to be things that are out of bounds. You can't do a Ponzi coin scheme, right? You can't do that. But I guess that's part of the question is that crypto is such a tumultuous area that it is a known risk. It is a gamble at this point. It's it's not regulated. It's not backed by the government. It's basically going to Vegas and, you know, betting on dice. Well, but but I mean, there there is a bit of a different feel. You have to admit that when... Crypto is the number one advertiser in the Super Bowl, right? When they're putting their names on sporting events, FTX put their patch on on Major League Baseball umpire uniforms, which I thought was really interesting, right? Because you think of the umpire as the arbiter of fairness, right? In the game, you know, you're not betting on your team to win. The umpire is going to do right, right? That's, you know, very strategic. But a casino can also sponsor events and whatnot. Well, that's, look. Look, America's views on gambling have changed drastically. Yeah. I worked in Congress. They passed the Online Poker Act, which banned online poker. Now you can bet uh, on sports on your phone and you're getting right. points, points of view. But again, we believe you can bet on sports, but the sport games aren't rigged. You go to the casino, the casino dice are not. Yeah, but there, there is the notion of you can go to Vegas, you lose $10,000. Nobody raises their hand and says, government, please bail me out. I just lost $10,000. It's like <laughs> you gambled. Like, tough, tough luck. Right. But if you buy a money market mutual fund. Exactly. Who, who is supposed to be able right. to lose value, even though they promise you that they won't. Right. Because they're going to use a rounding arbitrage to state a dollar. And it does. 
here comes the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department, you know, oh, systemic risk, systemic risk, systemic yeah. risk. So I guess that's the question, right? Is like, which one of these does crypto fall into? Is do we say it is a gamble if you want to engage in it, so be it, but you may lose your money and nobody's coming to rescue you. The bigger problem is there shouldn't be things where the government, other than deposit insurance, where the government says, right. for the you know, we're going to help people, your first 250000 By the way, all your money in the bank isn't guaranteed. Right. Right. Only the first two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Why? Because people have more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the bank are generally really rich people. Yeah. And can afford to lose a lot of it. Right. Not that first two fifty. And part of the problem is we've gotten into a a mindset where we believe regulation means things don't fail or people don't lose money in regulated markets. It's a sense of safety that it's a safe bet. And this is part of the, the problem. I think we've created a system where. Right. The government has overextended the safety net to wealthy investors. And by the way, let's be clear, there's a huge racial element to this. Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite statistics, the Federal Reserve does surveys of very wealthy people to see how much everybody, yeah. but they oversample wealthy people. It's called the Survey of Consumer Finance. And they look and they look at how many people own corporate debt. Just, you know, you have a bond in a big corporation. Why do I pick on corporate debt? Because during COVID, the Federal Reserve bailed out corporate debt under the auspices of the COVID crisis being a quote-unquote systemic yeah. risk, including junk bonds. So if you bought something that was considered investment grade when you bought it, but then it had been downgraded because the company had problems, didn't matter, right? You're owning junk bonds, and the federal government is bailing you out because of COVID. Do you know what share of African-Americans owned corporate debt just as a direct uh, privately held instrument? I'm guessing a very low percentage. You want- Zero point zero. Yeah. They literally couldn't find anyone. Yeah. Oh my gosh. In a giant survey, yeah. oversampling very wealthy people. Yeah. And you know, you, you know, meanwhile, some data showed that crypto was disproportionately held by African Americans. You know, as many yeah. as one in six to one in four African Americans reported yeah. owning crypto. And so allowing it to fail has a has a much more disproportionate impact. So it, that I mean, I think that's a very worthwhile point to bring up. So last question on on this, for folks who are interested in the long-term consequences, including for folks who may not have money in crypto, right, but are kind of wondering where this shakes out, what's your guess as to the ultimate impact of the downfall of FTX? So I think it's too soon to tell. I'm reminded, we we talk about Enron, but MCI WorldCom was a much larger failure that occurred right before, right, right after. I was a veteran of the financial crisis. Bear Stearns seemed like the biggest thing ever, right? Then wait a little bit. There was Lehman. Lehman was a giant disaster. You know, then AIG said, hold my yeah. beer. Yeah. Right? So is this You're the first penny. domino or is it the only domino? Right. There, there's a stable coin called Tether, mm-hmm. which a lot of people have speculated what's actually behind it. Stable coins function somewhat like money market mutual funds. They've not been very transparent about their accounting. If we'd been doing this podcast two, three months ago and you said, Aaron, crystal ball, there's going to be a giant crypto implosion, blah, blah, blah. I would have guessed Tether before FTX. Yeah. So, you know, uh, my guess is FTX isn't the last to fall. What's next? I don't know. If I knew, you know, I might not be a senior fellow at Brookings, but rather a, a, a true billionaire, <laughs> not, a, not a fake one like SPF, but investing yeah. and shorting and buying and selling different assets. I'm, I'm not a great investor. So 
I don't have an answer, but I do think that ultimately we need to have a deeper reflection on ourselves in terms of how we treat investment and how we treat the ability to lose money. And I think that we've been so scarred by the financial crisis and we have not properly learned some of those lessons. The lessons I think we need to learn are one, individual accountability and prosecution for people who break the law. This is not about money. It's about, you know, crime and jail. White collar crime is still crime. There are prison sentences associated with that. Uh, you know, wealthy people should not be able to buy their way out of jail. Mm-hmm. Two is how much in regulated marketplaces do we tolerate failure and loss? And I clearly, you don't want a system where the financial system itself teeters on insolvency. But I think equally, you don't want to bail out investors, particularly the wealthier you are in the richer asset classes you are, the more likely you are to be bailed out because you're quote unquote systemic. Meanwhile, you're seeing lots of people in crypto. The last thing I want to point out here is crypto retail skews young. Yeah, very. Like that, I don't think I need data to prove to you. What I do think people don't fully appreciate is the correlation between age and race in the United States. And, you know, as somebody who, who was a, a, a math and social science major in, in college, uh, I like odd statistics. So, you know, my, my elementary school age daughters come back and they do mean, median, mode. I think we all did mean, median, mode. Yeah. And now we talk about medians, the middle point, and means, average. We don't talk about mode that much. Mode is the most common in any data set, whatever number is the most common. A couple of years ago, one of my favorite statistics, the, do you know what the modal age of white Americans is? The most common age among white people. It's older. 57. Yeah. Want to take a guess among African Americans? Significantly younger. 27. Wow. Want yeah. to take a guess among Latinos? I'm guessing similarly young. 11. Yeah. So when you when you have an asset that is favored by younger people. It's inherently more diverse. One of the things that becomes very difficult, it's very difficult for policymakers and, you know, even the chattering class or other folks, because they think about their own age and their cohort. And they get this data point abstractly that America has become much more diverse, but the way it's become much more diverse is younger people. Yeah, you have lawmakers who are overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly older, and so they are they do not understand this new asset and are certainly not the population trading in it. Right. Because their life experience, right? Yeah. They think, well, when I was 30, and then they're remembering the racial demographic of their 30-year-old, yeah. and even if they were skewed and didn't get it quite right, right? But they don't appreciate, look at the racial makeup of people who are 25 in America today, radically different than people who are 65. And you have an asset, right? Compare assets. Money market mutual funds yeah. are about retirees, and then within retirees, wealthier retirees. And then compare that to crypto, right, where you're targeting 25-year-olds as opposed to 65-year-olds. Huge racial ramifications. And I don't think people fully yeah. appreciate that. And you should ought to layer that on your analysis of what it means when one asset class is bailed out. And another is allowed to lose. Or when one is heavily regulated and backed by the government and one is just free floating out there in the ether. Yeah, exactly. That's a really excellent point uh, to end on. And one that 
probably warrants its own episode in a few months when maybe the next domino in the series will have fallen and we'll have a better sense of what the the broad ramifications of FTX will be. So Aaron, we may have you back on the show when that point in time comes. Well, it's been a pleasure to be on and look forward to potentially another appearance in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks again to Yesha and Aaron for joining me for this episode. And thanks to our listeners for finding Broken Law. If you're enjoying the show, you can help us bring it to more listeners by giving us a five-star review and recommending Broken Law to a friend. If you have ideas for a future episode, you can let us know by emailing the show at podcast at acslaw.org. You can also find us on social media at acslaw and at hashtag Broken Law Podcast. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves, and whose it does not. Mm-hmm.